You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, um, I just wanted to open the discussion, um, mainly just if, if people got any immediate questions, we should bring them out. It's a couple of things I wanted to discuss. And I mean, we have a, our first nonfiction and our first uh, who's reading with a fiction writer. And yet, and the stories are very different, but in many ways they have, there's a sort of a theme of contingency and history that uh, kind of run through them both. So I thought it'd be an interesting thing to talk about. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, Stan, the whole idea of the sensitive dependence, it, at one point when you're talking about it, it sounds like what you say. And, another t- and, it, and in another way, you're talking about basically there's not much dependence, that, the ca- that basically everything kind of folds back together. And how does that work out with, is that, is that uh, classical chaos theory, or is that just one of the options? No, I think this is the thing that we don't know. Um, for a long time, I have defined science fiction as the history that we cannot know. So that this is why alternative histories are folded into science fiction. You have the present moment, and then you have, we can't know the future. If something else were to have gone different in the past, some crucial event and something else had happened, we could never know that. And then the time before history, um, prehistory, when there weren't written records and only the archaeologists are telling us what's going on, we have maybe 30,000 years of human history that we can't know that either because there's no good records. So that's why prehistoric fiction always ends up in the science fiction section also. But science fiction is simply a big blanket term for the histories that we can't know. And so I've always been interested in it. And then I, I read, I look up things like, what will the philosophers of history tell me? What are the laws of history? And that ridiculous set of laws that I read at the end there, you know, well, a bigger army will beat a smaller army, or um, people will never give up power. These are uh, gross generalizations. They don't have any predictive power. We don't even know if they're true or not. And they're all the historians have to give us. The, we, we have no idea why things happen in human history. They're, there are no covering laws. There are certainly not any strict explanandums where you can say, okay, give us a set of initial conditions and then we're going to tell you what's going to happen 10 years later. It can't be done. Historians can't do it. Science fiction writers can't do it. Futurists can't do it. And so you end up in this uh, storytelling mode where no matter what, we, with, the har- with the work of, uh, of philosophers and historians for 2,000, 3,000 years, we're still, uh, we still have a complete blank in terms of powerful explanations of why things happen. Um, it, I, I, Marx is as good as anybody, but no, nobody's very good. And Marx is great as a historian, but he's not great as a prophet. So you can see that even though he had huge explanatory powers for what had happened in the past, he couldn't tell you what was going to happen 30 years later. He tried, and, and it was stupendously wrong. So. Uh, it makes it interesting, and it's a kind of an opening for telling stories, because stories are like micro-histories, and if, a, if a, the, the author or the narrator says, I can tell you why this happened, well, 
instantly you know they're probably lying and they're making up yet another story. So <laughs> it, it's like story behind story behind story. And for a fiction writer, this is kind of like heaven. Yeah, we call it, it's called plot. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, the thing that struck me about the, um, the Darwin book, uh, Eric's book, uh, and this, uh, not only what you read, but the whole book, it was this, this feeling that it was 18, the 1830s, and, you're di and these are totally modern people, and yet they live in a very, in, in a totally different world. They live in a world that is not totally known, that's not completely known. And, and I was thinking, uh, when, you were, when Darwin was walking up that river, that was only 35 years after uh, Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark out up the Missouri with the hope that they might find the woolly mammoth. <laughs> Nobody knew that uh, there was no way to know. I mean, and it seems that you you were able to capture a lot of that. And it, um, I think it's because you were thinking of a Darwin that was about your age, right? Yeah. Yes, definitely. I mean, he was 22 when he left England, and he was 27 when he got back. So I was... I think the thing that originally attracted me to this idea was that he sounded like people that I was staying in hostel dorm rooms with. I mean, these stories he was telling that he was writing about in his book were like, hey, you know, I recognize that story. I recognize the tone of that. And I recognize the guy who's bored from a long bus journey sounds just like Darwin being bored from being on the ship for a long time. Certainly, yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> The other, well, all right, let me open this up. There's, um, I, I thought you said one thing in this book that I felt um, was egregiously wrong. Where is it? <laughs> Maybe you could find it for me. It's where you say that, um, um, that uh, the theory of evolution was common sense. Where is that? <laughs> Seriously. Where, yeah, uh, I actually just found that, found that for you a minute ago because I was going to talk about that. Um, Good. I was actually going to talk about something on that page, but um, it's, it, I quoted Thomas Huxley, uh, who was kind of the guy who ended up actually defending evolution because Darwin really hated a controversy. And so he published this book that just shook the foundations of the world and then retired uh, and, and left this guy Huxley to go out and do it. And Huxley got a copy of The Origin of Species in the mail, and uh, it, it's not quite clear how he made this response, but somehow he basically said, how extremely stupid not to have thought of that. <laughs> um, right, where is yeah, that I, I think this is, is a very logical idea. It's on page 101. 101. Uh, let's see. And what's the date on that statement? Uh, Huxley's statement is 1859. Despite nearly two centuries' worth of concerted efforts to kill it, Evolution by natural selection survives because it is a triumph of common sense. And one of the questions I like to ponder while I traveled was whether the theory had clarified itself in Darwin's head after a few eureka moments or if the specific examples themselves were less important than the travel experience. Actually, the, the part that struck me was, was where you said um, it is a triumph of common sense. That seems to me totally wrong. The, that uh, evo that the theory of natural selection and, and evolution itself seems uh, very counterintuitive. I mean, uh, how so? What are, but I think <laughs> the idea that that animals uh, that all life developed from one incident. 
Well, the, maybe the implications are difficult, but but the idea that, that Darwin's expressing is just that you see that things in life are different, that even you know things in the same species are different, and that maybe uh, some of those differences uh, you know are heritable, that you can pass them along to the next generation, and that. Uh, some of those differences help you out, and some of them don't, and that the ones that help you out are more likely to get passed on. And, uh, right, that, but, that makes a certain amount of sense. But the idea that, that different species arise from a, a common origin seems to me, I, I mean, now that we understand that's just following the implication. It, <laughs> you need enough time for it to happen. That's what yeah, I think. That, I mean, Lyle uh, and yeah. Hutton, they just got in geological time. They yeah. thought the world was 6,000 years old, and suddenly they realized that it had to be millions of years old, and they had all these yeah. dinosaur bones around everywhere. Right. And suddenly there was enough time to right. make it common. And Darwin was, in fact, he was carrying a copy of Lyle's uh, Principles of Geology with him, which was kind of this first book to express the idea that the Earth is really old and has kind of followed these processes of erosion and things. Right. Like no, that, that I agree. Uh, you had a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the, the new trend, I think, is to say that you believe in microevolution but not macroevolution. I've actually, somebody, uh, who is it? Sam Brownback wrote a, an editorial in the New York Times saying, I believe in microevolution but not macroevolution. Oh, the poor man. Uh, which is just, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, it just, uh, yeah, I don't want to, um, if <laughs> nobody wants to argue about it, okay. Uh, it just seems to me like, it's it's an idea that makes perfect sense to me, and I begin to understand <laughs> it. But I, it, it's counterintuitive in the sense, in the same way that that the Earth is round is counterintuitive. Yeah. It's common sense is not going to tell well, you, you that. Know, but it's almost a tautology. Uh, if you reduce it to uh, survival of the fittest, then you have to define fitness by what survives. And so the two just it's a, it's common sense <laughs> to the point of even being a, a cliche or a. Or a a tautological non-explanation of anything. Yeah. The fittest things survive. <laughs> and what are uh, what are what the is fitness uh, defined by? <laughs> Survivability. Well, thank you. I mean, this is one of this is why it makes perfect sense. Like common sense, yeah. They'll get cold if it's cold out. All right. Uh, that was the part that that. Uh, well, I mean, we talk. I mean, like we were just talking about. I mean, I think one of the interesting things for me was if. If Darwin hadn't come along and if he hadn't had these specific experiences, you know, in the historical sense, you know, what would have happened to evolution? I mean, did it need the great man of history? No. And Darwin is, you know, is in this debate the great man. I mean, you know, it was concurrently discovered yeah. basically anyway. The guy didn't have Darwin's evidence. I mean, Darwin spent 30 years basically with this kind of idea in his head, working on it, developing evidence and testing it and and you know, really compiling the book that he eventually released, but you know, somebody else had it just kind of popped into his head. He spent a couple of years in the jungle, and he said, oh, "Hey, you know." That's a good. There you have your science fiction novel in in the sense of your alternative history. Mm -hmm. You remove Darwin. Wallace, kind of an outsider, doesn't have good evidence. Maybe you know, maybe it doesn't work when if he proposed it. Yeah. Well, now uh, you did this. I've forgotten how did where did evolution end up in years of rice and salt? <laughs> good question. You left it out? I did. You left out space travel, too. I know. But <laughs> it's a 
when you write novels about world history, that there's an easy category error to be made there, which is, you know what, it's still just a novel, and it isn't a world, and therefore there were missing elements. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to discuss some of these things that didn't come into my stories. But evolution would have been independently verified. I mean, they, the cool thing was in the years of race and salt, the moment of if, if we didn't have Europeans, where would uh, the scientific revolution would come from? Where would feminism come from? They would have arrived, but they would have arrived in different forms and through different historical actors. Right. And so uh, I didn't get into where evolution would arrive from because it's almost... You know, common sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. There's nothing you look at. Well, it's more you know that there was dinosaurs and they're gone. They didn't pass the survival test. You know, but you ne there's no uh, discernible evidence. And I'm not speaking as a creationist. I'm saying, you know, I'm just saying there's no. You don't look around and see. Oh, that, that squirrel is turning into a horse, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's still very commonsensical compared to, say, quantum mechanics. If you were saying, that, you know, quantum mechanics, it just isn't common sense. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think what you do see, or if you look at you know, animals that are closely related to us, chimpanzees and apes and such, you can really see similarities. And if you look at cats, you know, your domestic cats, and you look at your panthers, Yeah, I mean, these, these yeah. rias that we're talking about here, these I don't know if I, I didn't explain that term, which I apologize, but these are basically South American ostriches. And um, one of Darwin's big they're stories, right. not they're big. They're, I mean, they're, they're not like African ostriches, but they're, they're, they're largest. They're three or four feet tall, something like that. And one of the things that Darwin was really interested in is there's two kinds, and they were geographically separated. Um, and he spent a bunch of time, first of all, he'd heard these stories about the smaller kind, but never actually found one. And as far as he knew, no European had ever found one. So he was really eager to just find the first of these. And I actually found it by accident. One of his buddies shot one, brought it back, and the guy would shoot stuff and bring it back to Darwin and be like, what do you think of this? And Darwin said, I'm hungry, let's eat it. And then realized like three quarters of the way into the meal, like, oh my God, we're eating evidence. We are eating, in fact, what became the first recorded Darwin's Rhea. Um, <laughs> uh, although that, that was controversial because there was a French naturalist who it turns out had also discovered it uh, before Darwin and had cataloged it in France. So it's now commonly known as the Darwin's Rhea, but the, the scientific name is... Uh, was given to what the French naturalist named it. <laughs> uh, but, but, I mean, he was, he was looking around. He's looking at these birds, and he says, okay, well, here's larger birds, and the larger birds all tend to be in the north, and really, really similar, but clearly different, smaller birds uh, that all tend to be in the south, and they're separated. Kind of, the, Why would that happen? And this is what made Darwin, you know, what he was, is he could look at things, and he would observe that, and then he would say, well, wh why is that? <laughs> and he was able to come up with a convincing explanation, yeah. I think. The first, the first, um, uh, the first Audubon Club member to go to Galapagos would have discovered evolution instantly. No, they're they're discovering variation within a species, I think, and, and you know, and they're discovering maybe punctuated equilibrium, mm -hmm. and you know, but I don't think they're discovering by looking. Uh, it's actually fairly. I mean, it's fairly that amazing species that species all had the same origin. That, you know that. Mm -hmm. you, you could you That's could have had uh, many different uh, you know God could have created lots of different kinds of cats you know they, they what where's the intuition that there was the common sense that says they were all at some point one cat but God created a lot of cats and somehow he also appeared to have a lot of 
created a lot of old cat bones that were similar to modern cats but different, <laughs> and then scattered them around all over the place. And made them look old. <laughs> right, and made them look old. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had a lot of influences like that where y- you could see these things come in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good yeah, idea. He was, he was no evolutionist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, during the, the void. Yeah, he, he was not. Right. Right. And the, the mechanism, I agree, is common sense. If you just think about it, the mechanism. <laughs> but that's Darwin's just, contribution. Yes. <laughs> it's the mechanism. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. You're right. Although he had yeah. the courage to follow it to its logical extension yeah. and say, well, the, if this is true, then it means that also, you know, by the way, we're we share a common ancestor with the chimpanzee, but I mean, you know, he, he his idea that, I mean, his grandfather was telling him about evolution. His grandfather was saying, you know, here we are all, you know, descend with modification, but he just wasn't right on the terms of the modification. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I also think a lot about the, the, there's a science fiction term called the singularity. Most people have probably mm-hmm. heard of the idea that oh, yeah. things now are changing so fast that world's going to be unrecognizable. And and just talking about this or, or that or looking at that book, it's like to me, the changes that took place in the 19th century were much vaster than the changes that happen now. It's much of the the uh, uh, like like Lao, like the idea that the earth was actually billions of years old, this concept, you know, the concept of uh, um, and and um, I don't know, it just seems like the, the Victorians laid a lot of the groundwork for for everything that we've done. And I, anyway. <laughs> the singularity I would have to speak out against. It's a science fiction idea that isn't going to come to pass. And, and every once in a while, like every generation or so, there's a science fiction idea that seizes a bunch of the science fiction community and as if it's going to come to pass. And, but then also there's an outside group of boosters that can have a, a economic reasons to be boost, boosting this idea, or it helps to raise their profile as a futurist. A generation before it was nanotechnology was going to change everything, and to the point where you needed to freeze your heads because <laughs> nanotechnology was going to repair your dead brain and you were going to live forever. And now it's the singularity. But this is a terrible misunderstanding of artificial intelligence and the human brain and history and it's just uh, like like L. Ron Hubbard's science fiction idea turned into religion. It's a it's a lame science fiction idea, but it has this tremendous attraction for a certain number of boosters who have boosted it. Right, like space travel. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that one. Uh, at least space travel is physically possible. See, this is the thing. I mean, it, it, within the solar system, you can in fact travel around. But, uh, but the singularity implies yeah. that there's going to come a moment in history where our machines are going to take off into their own self-generated evolution, and we're going to be left behind like bacteria in the corner that didn't know what happened to it. Or the parents after the world goes to college. (laughs) 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 And it's not going to happen. They're going to keep coming back home. (laughs) Right. But I remember uh, talking with, or listening to a bunch of people talking, making fun of the creationists and the the museum in Kentucky that 
as the dinosaurs or the cavemen and all that kind of stuff. And I realized that most of us who think we're talking about evolution really aren't. We're talking <laughs> about a directed process. We, that's how people see it in their mind, as a, as a, a directional process that leads to us. And yeah, I mean, just us, ghouls fought against this, so you know. Mm -hmm. But the, and then people say the world's six thousand years old. Everybody knows it's a billion years old. We have no more concept of a billion years than we do of six thousand. I mean, they're really kind of interchangeable <laughs> in, in not in scientific terms, but in terms of common sense. Yeah, you know, I agree with uh, that. Yeah, we don't really have a concept of that. We're we at least have a concept that we shouldn't believe that stuff <laughs> but, uh, but I think that biologically we uh, we're sort of formed to, to think in much shorter terms than uh, yeah. than Lyle's uh, you know than geological terms mm -hmm. yeah, the big numbers are too big so you followed in um, um, Galileo's footsteps right recently I did I uh, went to Venice for a Galileo festival <coughs> last month and my Italian uh, helper, who is um, a, a professor at Harvard in the history of science, he was, uh, gave me an, a, a huge amount of very generous help with the facts of Galileo. And so he knew of the book's existence, had read the manuscript, had um, re-spelled every single Italian word because I had this bad <laughs> flaw. I can't spell Italian words right. I always get one of the vowels wrong. So every single word I used that was in Italian, he had to re-spell for me. <laughs> But he gave me more substantial help as well, and since he knew of the book's existence, he told the Venetians about uh, the book, which was just out in England in September also. So it was a book that what didn't even exist in Venice, but there I was, and I got to visit all the places that were important in Venice to Galileo's life. And, uh, he went to the Doge's Palace to demonstrate his telescope when he had it at a power of about nine, and they took it up to the top of the Campanile, and showed, uh, they pointed it out beyond the Lido to the Adriatic, and they saw ships that their uh, naked eye lookouts only saw two hours later. So the military value of the telescope was established in that very first demonstration to the Doge. And when I went up the Campanile last month, uh, this is all the 400th anniversary of this, which is why the festival's happening. Well, there is a new plaque uh, wired into the upper corner of the Campanile saying, Galileo Galilei demonstrated the telescope in this in August 25th, 1609, and so now there's a new historical plaque for that as well. <laughs> and I went to where his teacher, Sarpi, was uh, attempted assassination of Sarpi on a bridge in Venice by the Pope's assassins, and uh, I went to that bridge, and in the next campanile, uh, I mean in the next uh, uh, campo, was a big statue of Paolo Sarpi. So the Venetians are always remembering their guys and always doing their best because they hate Rome. <laughs> so, um, and then uh, Sagredo. You know, the, the, uh, Galileo's uh, book that he was put on trial for, the dialogue uh, concerning the two world systems, the Dialogo, um, has three characters talking. And two of them are named after um, um, Galileo's good friends and patrons who had died young years before. And one of them was Sagredo, I think Francesco Sagredo. And his palazzo is right there on the Grand Canal, and it's now a hotel called Ca Sagredo. And there's all kinds of Sagredo stuff all over this hotel, which it's not a hotel. It's the palazzo that Galileo partied in <laughs> for about 20 years of his life as a professor over in Padua. He would take the uh, barges over to Venice to party. 
and he would be with his rich friends. He was not rich, he was in debt, but he had rich friends. And Sagredo was one of them with this big pink palazzo. And Sagredo liked animals. So the palazzo was filled with wild creatures that nobody really knew even the names of that lived in this thing because Sagredo liked it. So I, I mean, I'm in this hotel. All the, the, mem the, the guests of the hotel are just thinking they're in an ordinary hotel. And I wanted to grab them and say, Galileo partied in this very room. <laughs> but I don't so sure that uh, they would have been as impressed as I was. It was a beautiful trip, though. Very, um, like, instant nostalgia. Do we have any questions or comments? Yes, please. Um, well, it was all as accurate as I could make it. Um, it, it uh, uh, Paul Tibbetts, the, the real commander of the Enola Gay, did in fact have to do a test run to prove to General Curtis LeMay uh, that they were good enough to fly the atomic bomb to uh, Hiroshima because they had spent about a year in Utah practicing and, and LeMay had spent that year bombing Japan into the ground. <coughs> he wasn't convinced that these guys out of Utah were gonna be better at it than his own experienced bombers. Plus it was a new airplane. Yeah, it was the B-29, it was the biggest uh, bomber yet and they had, they had been using it a little bit. So he did run a test and he took off with a huge weight in the plane and he killed both of the engines on the right side and he landed the planes with just the two engines on the left side. So that was real, and I thought, well, geez, what if he had blown it and crashed, and that would give me my alternative. <laughs> and they took off from Tinian, which they had named the story. I didn't read the parts of the story, but they had named all the features of Tinian Island as if it were Manhattan Island, so that the landing was at 42nd and Broadway, and it goes on and on like that. <laughs> uh, uh, and so I, I tried, I did my best, and there were little moments along the way. Um, Will you look at that son of a bitch go? That's what the real pilot said when they saw the mushroom cloud. So I put that in, thinking that might be what any American <laughs> pilot might say. Uh, yeah? Was there any correlation to what the strike did? I heard the mm -hmm. incentive and I'm Yeah, they, um, the plane was were, they named it the lucky strike because of both and, they, and they, the guys in the crew were saying, oh, you can't smoke camels, you gotta smoke lucky strikes now. And I put a, uh, in a thing in the in the story in its original printing about the green pack of the Lucky Strike with the white circle in the middle, irate letter from a World War II veteran. He said, "Young man, during the war, green dye was a military necessity, and Lucky Strike cigarette packets were white during the war. So I changed it later on." <laughs> But that's the kind of critique you get. And uh, I was never in a B-29, and I got some features of it wrong. Uh, I, I, I got to look in one at, uh, you know, these groups of World War II planes that'll come to your town, and you can go out to the airfield and look. And there were no good photos that I could find, although these days with the internet, all the research <coughs> is so much easier. Yeah. Did you ever go, go on a B uh, B-17? No. That's a scary business. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's about, you know, the inside is about like a VW bus. There's like eight guys in there. There's no pressurization. They're all 20 years old. They're stacking these planes up. And, oh, man, that was scary business. But, uh, 
One, one thing about that story, and I thought it worked really well. I like the way you cut through, but you left out all the, uh, in Cutting to the Chase, uh, Stan left out all the Kim Stanley Robinson stuff, which is a lot of, a lot of uh, actual wonderful detail, like the stuff about the Allen and the stuff about them building a little tower on the hill and, you know, that kind of stuff. I worry about that. I, I, uh, maybe this is all that was needed, and this story should have been like one third of a film. <laughs> that would have been. It could have been a Terry Misson story. Terry Misson version of this story. Right. Uh, I'm hoping that it will. One can consider that it could work both ways, like uh, texts for plays. You know, they can be really long, but if you do them on stage, you'd better have a, a working text. And so I've been making my reading text into something like what a theater group would do. Uh, with Full script, cut it down, make it work. So it's a it's a work in progress. Cool. You have a work in progress. Yeah, you I've got a couple. Anything to say about it? <laughs> um, not that much. I'm d I'm working on a website development project, but it's not launching until the spring, so we're a little bit behind. But uh, if you, you don't want to talk about websites, yeah. <laughs> no, we, no, we do, because this one is a climate change. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, working oh. On, a, on a climate change website. Um, it's actually a, a research website, um, which we hope will become a useful research tool uh, for writers, among other people. But uh, You yeah. told me you're working on a book. Well, I'm also working on a book, but... Uh, <laughs> you clearly don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, it's, it's not for certain yet, but uh, I've been working over the summer, actually, on a, on a kind of neuroscience kind of book. Um, which is about actually the psychology of what makes me throw temper tantrums about sports. Um, <laughs> and uh, because I do it against my will. And this is why, yeah, uh, this is why I want to know what's going on in my brain. Because I. What I, sport? Uh, hockey, ice hockey. <gasps> Those are, that's one of the frustrating sports. That's why you have temper tantrums. You have to get into this. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Hockey and soccer uh, are built on frustration because yeah. nothing ever happens and there's lots of ties. I mean, scores yeah, aren't made. There, there's a whole essay about this in, in this book called Amongst the Thugs um, by an English <laughs> writer about traveling around with hooligans where he writes about the, the intentionally built frustration of a tie and then the, the huge release that comes with when a goal is scored. But, yeah, I get really frustrated about it, and I know better because I'm a science writer, and I pride myself on reason and rationality and uh, you know emotional calm and everything. And then I sit there and, and watch an ice hockey game and get really just irritated against my will. So it's I want to explain what is going on in in my brain that's allowing the emotional part of my brain to just like club the the rational part and be like, nope, you're getting mad tonight. <laughs> so. Yeah, please. Well, there's uh, there's actually a really good book out uh, right now called How We Decide. Uh, that's about how you make decisions and what goes on in your brain when you make decisions. And you have this idea that when you make a decision, right, you take all the costs and, and benefits into account and you kind of drop this little sheet in your head and, there, you know, it's all very rational and analytical. And in fact, uh, what the when they scan your brain and watch you make a decision, what it basically suggests is the emotional part of your brain makes an instantaneous judgment, makes the decision, and then the rational part of your brain makes this huge list of things to support it. So yeah, I think you're actually right. <laughs> That's our adaptive. Uh, yeah, right. This is this is what we evolved for. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, good questions both. <laughs> hey, Mom. <laughs> um, yeah, it's his first book. So how did you get started financially to be able to do it? 
Um, so the first travel I did for this, uh, I basically saved up the money working at a newspaper for a couple of years and then traveled around and then was able to live with my parents. It's my mom sitting in the back there. Hey, mom. <laughs> um, and then I was freelancing for a while and kind of I had come back from this long trip I had done in South America where I would basically read Darwin for the first time and uh, had all these connections pop out of me and, and had this idea like I would really like to write a book about this. And at the time, you know, I still was kind of just starting out as a freelance writer and writing for magazines and things. And so really didn't didn't know much about doing a book yet and kind of uh, came back from this trip and, and did some other stuff and was writing a lot for an outdoors, uh, kind of weekly outdoors section uh, for the Los Angeles Times and kind of talking to people there and uh, researching Darwin on the side. Like I got a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, the nice thing about Darwin is he like kept everything he ever wrote. <laughs> so I've got all of his letters going back to the time he was like eight years old. Uh, in this giant book from the, the Cambridge Library. And so I read all this stuff and kind of came up with this idea, well, this is how I would do the book if I could come up with it. And then uh, I'd actually applied to the journalism school at uh, Berkeley. And uh, when I got in there, I kind of took some time off and, and did the travel basically uh, to do this uh, once. And I, I found an agent pretty early on and that was kind of like, okay, well, there's actually going to be some <laughs> result at the end of this, um, a nice vote of confidence kind of thing. But basically by living with my parents um, <laughs> is the answer to that. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> he studied at Berkeley with Michael Pollan, who's yeah. a food critic for the New York Times or something, right? Yeah, he basically writes about food for the New York Times magazine. Yeah, yeah, my, Michael. Uh, yeah, he is uh, actually an amazing writer. One of the nice things about being in his class there was he'd kind of open up his notes and show you this is how I built this story. Um, you know, for somebody coming from a newspaper background like I had where you write, you know, everything is like 800 words and is simplified down and it's just like, get it done. And then, you know, Michael would show you, well, you actually have to, if you're gonna write something longer, you actually have to think a little bit about kind of where are you gonna start and where are you gonna be in the middle and where are you gonna be at the end. And, you know, he'd show you how he'd, he'd actually construct these things. And it's like, oh, hey, that's, that's now, pretty do you cool. you like McPhee? Cause you're yeah. McPhee. Yeah. I mean, everybody likes McPhee. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I like McPhee's selection of things to write about. I think that's the thing that most impresses me. I mean, he's a brilliant writer, but I like that he was able to write an entire book about oranges. Um, I don't know many people who could pull that off. Well, I was thinking about the newspaper thing because also he he ostentatiously uh, meanders. Yeah. I mean, very deliberate. There's a lot of yeah. very uh, calculated meandering that goes on. Yeah. And uh, I think that's an important way to distinguish between literature and just a newspaper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. Course. Yeah. It takes it takes a while to learn, which was one of the surprising things I think about going to journalism school. Is you kind of realize like, oh, hey, this there's actually something to this. <laughs> there's a, there's a bit more. You know, newspaper it can be very simplistic and you can kind of get into that uh, you get into something where it's almost not really writing it's just you know getting things as quickly and as sparingly done you know as, as possible and then you get into something a little longer which is why I like longer stuff it's you actually get some time to like you know think about things and pace things and I, I certainly appreciate that there's something you do that he does too that I only knew what is it reading aloud is where you hear it is that people laugh when they hear it aloud when they they might not even <laughs> read it on the page yeah and there's a there's a, a subtle wit to the and, and a, um, uh, a, a constant kind of comic aspect on this material that parts of it are funny and that's a treasure that's a great thing to have yeah McPhee certainly does that <laughs> yeah. pretty well and well and you have to do it uh, particularly with your 
with your book, which you're, it's like you're following Darwin, so you have to be a, a little foolish. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, because you're trying to bring out his youth and his... Yeah, and it's hard because, I mean, I really didn't want people to, you know, kind of read the book, and although I felt there were some things that really remind you know just the travel experience in south america i think there were a lot of things that are common to pe people who travel there that darwin shared i didn't want it to be the like oh you think you're like charles darwin <laughs> like okay better better not well, do it's that one the, it's one of the tricks of fiction writers i think i learned part of this from stan is you your narrator should always uh, be a little stupider yeah. than the reader and it sort of flatters the reader <laughs> and moves the story along and I s I'm still amazed when oh, wait, you... Wait, I wasn't trying to do that. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you can write first person and not slip into yourself, I think yes, is... Yes, yes. I mean, uh, I'd actually ask you if nobody else has a question, how you do that. How you, do you have to, like, go back and delete at the end of the day because you start slipping into yourself, or do you have to focus on no, that? No, I, I have the opposite problem. I can't write from my own point of view. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to frame it. I need to be playing at somebody else. And in first person, that makes it easiest of all. But even if I'm writing in third person, the narrator has to be someone very distinctly not me. Like in Galileo's Dream, the narrator is one of the people on the stage, although you don't know that until quite a long ways into the book. And and always, though, for me, and this is why I'm going to have trouble writing nonfiction, but it's about <laughs> my own experience in Sierra Nevada. I want, like anything, to write that book someday. But when I try to write it, I'm going to have to make up some... Right. Stan of the mountains that is not me uh, to make <laughs> that work because I like to play behind masks. That's I think this is I what everyone does just about who writes first person. Uh, it's just, I mean, I, I read this review. Uh, I was on an author panel a couple of weeks ago with uh, Ayala Waldman who's just written this uh, kind of controversial book about motherhood and, and it's really intensely personal. And one of the That's reviewers... Hates her kids, right? Yeah, exactly. The woman who, who published... An, article in the New York Times saying she loves her husband more than she loves her children. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and she, uh, you know, one of the reviewers wrote this really smart review saying, you know, most people who write, first person who write a memoir are basically controlling the narrative about what's said about them. And Ayelet <laughs> Waldman's out here just like, here you go, here's me. Um, which is... Bad well, idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Strange, to say the very least. But, uh, I mean, it was it's an interesting perspective when you write first person you kind of have to pick what goes in and what goes out and like you know I have a lot of friends who traveled with me in this book who uh, you know what one of them kind of sent me a review saying yeah, I think you make me sound a lot smarter and funnier than I am in real life <laughs> and it's like well yeah his conversations are, are you know edited to pick his best the best stuff that he said but at the same time that, that's how I see him in real life I see him as you know a smart funny guy so you you can emphasize you can build a, a person you know, short pieces without necessarily giving the full range. In the back, you had a... It, it's sort of related to what you were talking about, because I remember reading uh, that you were telling a new story, and I remember thinking the most charming part of it was that it seemed as if you were writing from the perspective of somebody that traveled it and was sort of charmed by the language <laughs> and by the people and the beauty of it. And what that was, what, what most struck me about that book? Well, thank you for that, and 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 I, but I couldn't have done it if it weren't for um, the narrator George, and um, and his sidekick Freds, who narrates the third story, by by making them the ones talking.
because these were first-person narratives. It's probably the last time I wrote in first-person, and it's a long time ago. But uh, I'll, if I had tried to tell you about my wife and my trip to Nepal, <laughs> uh, we did run into Jimmy Carter accidentally and have to shake hands with him. I mean, uh, bizarre things happened every day, and most of them went into the book. But it would have been um, like that kind of travel writing that does not have a point. So not like your book, but the travel writing that I call the I did this, I did that genre. Mm-hmm. which I, I, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with that genre because everybody who travels has a tremendous adventure that, and so why read about someone else's? And so I needed to shape it in, in fiction and I'm so glad that I found those characters and their, their stories because I could t- uh, throw in all of the things I saw in Nepal and, it, and somebody said, oh, you've got to write a sequel to that book, you know, we, and, and the problem is everything I know about Nepal is in that book. I have <laughs> nothing more to give. <laughs> so until I go back, I can't do a sequel. to show the human side of the sciences. That's a, that's a whole comedy in itself. It does lead to comedy because science pretends to be uh, objective and even boring. They want consensus. They want a lack of conflict, etc. They would like to create a situation where everybody just accepts with their results and leaves the rest beside. Yeah. But behind that is the human comedy of their attempts. And I think with Darwin, I mean, it's very useful because he's so controversial now, because he's so attached to this, you know, American controversy, it's very useful for scientific backers of evolution to have Darwin as kind of the, you know, the pristine visionary scientist. And, you know, that kind of old authoritative version of him is just a very useful version. And likewise, it's very useful for uh, creationists to have the kind of version of Darwin as a tormented, miserable old man who regretted, which is bogus, but who regretted his theories and, and was racked by anxiety and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, you lose you know, most of the life detail, which is, uh, I, I mean, I found very unfortunate in Darwin because I really liked the guy that I read. You know, I mean, I liked who I read about in first person and everything. I don't know what he was doing to control his own narrative. Did you read the, uh, what about the Darwin TV special? I haven't watched it. Yeah, I haven't watched it. Have you seen it? No, I did not see it. <laughs> For if Darwin had an explicit, he would have had to create one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone would have. Yeah, yeah. If what? Darwin hadn't existed. Someone would have had to create him. Well, yeah. I, th- I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting question who it would have been, but I, I think that there's got to be some face. I, mean, I think this is how just people deal with things: is put, you know, you have to put a person to it, and you know, this is why magazines always put people on the cover because magazines with people on the cover sell better than magazines without, and you just have to have a face to something, and. I think, unfortunately, for the kind of person that he was, that was Darwin. And he knew it was going to happen and didn't want that to be the case because he was a pretty quiet guy. But He was a very conventional Victorian Yeah, guy. I mean, he was this you know old country yeah. squire kind of guy. He didn't want the controversy, but he just he was convinced enough of his ideas that he knew he had to publish anyway. For me, the great vision of the scientist in our culture is um, 
Spock from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's almost yeah. no need for yeah, another one because he's so perfect. The Vulcan side, the attempt to be objective, rational, I am a scientist, I don't have any feelings, but of course he's half human and there's this boiling, raging emotion <laughs> that is underneath the covers of this rational side of Spock. I mean, there's a certain kind of scientist, uh, my wife among them, who that fits perfectly the profile. And, um, <laughs> So I, I, I'm not a big fan of Star Trek, uh, but the thing that is permanent value of, uh, of that show for me is Spock, because he's hilarious, and he's also <laughs> psychologically very true to the hard scientists. Oh, these are just the facts. <laughs> yeah, I think you forget how much you know, Victorian science was an adventure, too. I mean, there's not... Yes. You know, the scientist in the lab coat is not... I mean... That's much later. Right, Sci science is a hand was a very much a hands-on experience uh, in the 1800s and an amateur experience. Yeah, I mean this is still in the age before professional science. I mean there just wasn't, you know, Darwin aspired to be a scientist in a time before there was such a thing. There it just wasn't a career you could choose, and no, only a gentleman could do it. Right, and people who you know did science basically did it as a leisure activity and. Yeah, you know, I mean Darwin's family basically viewed him as a as a failure because this was his interest was you know the natural world and there's this great quote from his dad about how you know you'll never amount to anything and you're a failure and disgrace to the family <laughs> all this kind of stuff after he had, you know kind of left medical school because he wasn't interested. Is this the dad that would be the son of Erasmus? Yeah. Island? So in other words, his dad was a genius, his son was a genius, and he's complaining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think his the dad's quote was like, "You're never going to amount to anything except like uh, you know, rat catching," because that was <laughs> this is what Darwin liked to do: was go out and explore it. You know, and there just wasn't it wasn't one of those things where I you know maybe I should take up biology. It's, didn't exist. Yeah, it didn't, didn't exist yet. So. Well, the whole idea of professionalism, I mean, Dar uh, Galileo could be a professional because he was a military contractor, right? And yeah. Or Leonardo. Well, uh, Galileo, uh, um, he, as a mathematics professor, was the low guy on the totem pole because the mathematics was seen as just a tool of the trades in his time at the university. So if you were a philosopher and you were reciting Aristotle, you could get paid like 100 crowns a year. And as a math professor, you'd get paid like 300 crowns a year. So it was very, very strongly anti-math as just being something that mechanicals did for God knows what reason, or surveyors, for instance. So he had to build his profession. He had to convince his patrons and his various employers that what he did was uh, a legitimate thing. And he was very uh, particular in what titles he would get, uh, chief philosopher and mathematician to the Grand Duke of Florence. <laughs> and he, would, he was uh, insistent on carving out what his, what his profession was, because it didn't exist for him either. And he was essentially a kind of a philosopher, is what it comes down to in his era. And the, even the word scientist was, was not uh, quite, uh, it didn't really exist, not in Italian at that time. It's interesting, you know, Darwin's shipboard nickname given to him by the captain and the rest of the crew was Philosopher. <laughs> they oh didn't have God. a name for him. Uh, <laughs> like uh, Stephen Matron in the, uh, in the uh, Patrick O'Brien novel, mm -hmm. so almost the same period, a little yeah. bit earlier, I guess, where the naturalist on board was a, just a philosopher. Mm -hmm. Well, if there's no further comments, um, I'd like to very much like like to thank Eric and Stan for a great <laughs> evening and come back and see us next month. We have who do we have next month, Jacob? <laughs> Vandermeer and S.P. Brown. Who? Jeff Vandermeer and S.P. Brown.
There you go. Jeff Vandermeer and S.G. Brown. No, I know of Vandermeer, but I don't know these guys personally, but uh, they're science fiction writers. We're going back to science fiction. Our experiment in nonfiction <laughs> was a partial success. So <laughs> thank no, thank thanks, you very guys. much for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot. That's You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.